0: passage on which the teaching is based this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21. As we continue our journey through this book, this entire uh, school year, it's been a great joy. We come to, we're getting, it's building towards something if you haven't noticed. Uh, And uh, today you get another little piece of the clue of where Jesus is going with it all. And he does it in telling a parable, his second in the chapter, which is why it begins by saying this. Here, another parable. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, "'This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance.' And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants?' They said to him, "'He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons.'" They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm guessing that, regardless of the historian you might think that you are, you may not be aware of the details surrounding uh, what is the shortest known war in all of modern history. Of course, I'm referring to the Anglo Zanzibar War of 1896 which lasted a whopping 38 minutes. That's the way you want war to happen. And the details, they're almost comical in their telling. Apparently the little small island of Zanzibar was a British colony at the time and when the Sultan Thuani died, the British had handpicked his successor. Well, before that successor could arrive, Thuani's cousin declared himself to be in charge instead and barricade himself into the royal palace. Well, In a classic case of overkill, the British sent in five ships and like a thousand men to put down the uprising. Well, the would-be sultan, a man named Khalid Bargash, had only his palace guard, uh, some slaves, and whatever civilians he could gather together to resist the colonizing forces. (laughs) Well, with one singular volley, the British forces completely destroyed Zanzibar's only artillery batteries, And then, of course, they marched in, found the burning palace, really only receiving little ineffectual pot shots along the way. 38 minutes produced 500 casualties on the Zanzibar side and one wound from the British side. So you don't have to be like Confucius the wise to learn the moral of the story. Don't pick fights that you can't win. Well, the reason I was reminded of that is because we come to a portion of Matthew where the drama is building, and that pretty rapidly it's interesting that in human affairs, we usually try to avoid conflicts that involve bloodshed. You know, nobody wants that. But it really does seem like Jesus is different, doesn't it? You know, we're in the last of these five big teaching sections of Jesus, and it's when he's arrived at Jerusalem. <laughs> but he hasn't arrived with the message of peace, love, and happiness for the Jewish capital. No, he's coming here, not only not only committing great acts of provocation, but he's also ramped up his rhetoric where you see He's clearly picking a fight here. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus marches very defiantly into the very sacred center of Jewish religious life, the temple, and he takes whips to the money changers who had turned their temple into an ancient Near Eastern bazaar instead of a house of prayer. Well, now in our story, Jesus is putting his mouth where his whips have been and begins a series of verbal assaults on the religious establishment that seem to suggest that he wants the fight that's coming. Narrator voice, he actually does that that exact same thing. But why would he do that? And now look, I know that given the lessons of the Anglo-Zanzibar War, that you don't pick fights that you know that'll get you killed. But Jesus is doing exactly that, why? Well, generally speaking, because the mission that he's been on throughout this book has not been fully understood by anybody other than himself. The disciples were clearly getting nervous at Jesus' behavior, wondering why it is he's inviting all this negative attention. But Jesus isn't picking a fight on some kind of dare. Rather, what he's doing is he's taking the evil in these people's worlds and he's pushing it to where it always wants to go. Evil will always want to go to the destruction of the host. Ah, but here is what the minions of hell who are behind the Pharisees' actions do not know and that is that they are not dealing with some backwood country preacher. No, this is the ultimate power in the universe with which they are tangling. So the parable Jesus tells in chapter 21 is his way really of kind of framing his entire mission and the specific ways in which it implicates and of course condemns the people that should have known better, which are Israel's shepherds. The very people who were to be guiding the people of God towards Yahweh are actually doing just the opposite. Now. How they were doing that and what Jesus's remedy suggested are the subject of our message today. So I suggest Jesus lays out three challenges. He first of all has a challenge to their identity. He has a challenge to their pride, but then he leaves them with the challenge of the stone. Let's take that first one, the challenge of identity. Look, the parable that we just read I think is very interesting because it's one of Jesus's where it's clearly allegorical. You know what I mean by that? It means that every character or thing in the story has a specific referent. Or a character that it's standing for. It's interesting. J.R.R. Tolkien uh, never liked allegory, was very critical of it as a a piece of literature because he didn't like that it made things so obvious and didn't leave things up to the imagination of the reader. But I think that Jesus is actually trying to be obvious, especially as we see in verse 45 where, (laughs) where his targets, oh, they got the message, right? Albeit after being tricked, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay, so who are the parts in the story? Let's take a look at it. Well, first of all, you have a landowner who purchases a vineyard and is going to lend it out to workers. That landowner is clearly God the Father. Secondly, you have these workers. These are, you know, Jesus is going to explain, are are the religious establishment of Israel. They're the ones who are tending to work the garden. The men that get sent, Jesus goes on to say, are the prophets who have come to collect uh, the fees, the, the fruit of the labor from the Old Testament message of God. Finally, the son that comes, that's fairly obvious, It's the son of God, it's Jesus. But there's one more character here, and that's the character of the vineyard itself. The reason why this is interesting is because it turns out there's plenty of places in the Old Testament where Israel itself is pictured as a vineyard. You get this all through the prophets, especially in uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has been detailing some of the great problems uh, that that, that God has gone through in order to plant Israel as a vineyard. And then it says this in chapter five, verse seven of Isaiah. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Pretty clear, right? The vineyard image was the people of Israel. There's this motif going all through Jewish, Jewish history. And here's the deal. The people Jesus was telling the story to would absolutely have gotten that reference. However, the other associations, while we know them because we can read the whole story, they missed it at first. The Pharisees actually scramble up some of the characters early on. They've got the cast of characters cast differently. I agree with the commentators who say that more than likely the religious leaders, they saw themselves as being on the owner's side. Or, or maybe even being the owners themselves in the story. And of course, Jesus knows this, which is why when he ends the story at the end, he doesn't end by sort of wagging them, their finger and saying, you guys better repent or get right. What he does is poses them a question. Look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Ha, this is quite the setup, isn't it, right? <laughs> so mind you, all these people are like, well, it's time for some righteous indignation, isn't it? I mean, since we're the owners of God's true vineyard, Israel, I'll tell you what it is. Those tenants that did this, they're going to get it, and they're going to get it good. Look at verse 41. Well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. (laughs) Yikes. I mean, Jesus has given them just enough rope to very efficiently hang themselves. Now, look, before we move on to the next point, stop there for a second and recognize that, what Jesus is doing is giving a very powerful challenge to the way these leaders identify themselves. Because here's what Jesus is essentially saying every one of you are tenants in God's garden, but you know what the problem is? You think that you're owners. That is the problem. And in many ways, it's a very succinct description of the problem of the human condition at its most basic level. Because every one of us are creatures created by God, which means that our very existence is wholly cre- dependent on the creator's grace to give us life and flourishing. But of course, what was the fall all about? The fall is us about saying, no, actually, we'd rather be the owners. I wanna be the one who's in charge of who I am and what I do. But here's the problem. This is one of the things that Tim Keller loved to highlight uh, during his earthly ministry, When you have that thing, you create a very weird dilemma in the human heart. And it's a great description of modern humanity. Because if we really are owners, if we really are in charge of our own destiny, then we truly are free. We can do whatever we want. There are no constraints on what we might be or what we might do. But here's the nagging problem the great sacrifice that you make without realizing of imagining that you are an owner of your own life is that you lose meaningfulness. Why? Because if you are a finite person, limited in your knowledge and your extent to be able to exercise your own will over others, you know that while you might try to conjure up meaning, ultimately speaking, it cannot be there. So my freedom and my dependency are constantly in conflict, are they not? Now, that's not that we aren't trying to get meaning out of life, aren't we? You know, we live in a generation now who is trying to define itself, find an identity, generate meaning as it were, rooted in their own sexual desire, which I would argue is kind of understandable. Sexual desire is profound, it's pleasurable. But to declare yourself, for instance, a homosexual just because you experience sexual desires for someone of your same gender is in my opinion to elevate your desires to the role of an identity marker to a meaningfulness of life and I would simply argue back that believe it or not there was a day when human beings saw desires as just that whether they were sexual or otherwise desires They don't fully constitute an identity marker of any individual that might have them. Now, look, we're in a theologically conservative place here. It's easy to pick on those particular targets, but please understand something. Though we may not be those who are trying to identify ourselves by a certain sexual desire, we in the religious world can actually try to conjure out an identity from our very religious observance, can we not? Another way, and of course, there's nothing more natural. Religious observance feels like something that will help us ascend this life. And perhaps it gets me to ascend to the position of an owner and not a tenant. Because why? Because religious observance can be such a short little step away from the quid pro quo, Latin for this for that. That is, I give God my piety, and he gives me his acceptance. But don't you see, that's exactly what Jesus is confronting here. You are supposed to be Israel's pastors. You're supposed to be a community of people that are out there drawing the nations in to the grace and peace of this particular place. But instead, what you're doing is you're heaping upon them lorded uh, lorded sort of rules that I never asked them to follow. And not only that, you've neglected the poor among you because you've convinced yourself that you're above them. What a tragedy, Jesus says, will be your life when you discovered that you thought you were in charge. You thought you were the one who was running your life, but in actuality, you were dependent upon my grace from start to finish. Something which, by the way, the Pharisees predicted in their response. Which leads me to the second point. That's a nice segue into this one because, because irony of ironies, the Pharisees perfectly described their own dark destiny. Look again at verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who, listen to this, will give him the fruits in their seasons. Okay, notice what they say. They say, look, you can tell if you're acting like an owner or a tenant by your fruits. Because let's face it, this, is a whole, this whole passage is a, is, is a passage about a question of authority, and Jesus is saying, I'm telling you that you will know people by their fruits. But what's happened is he's already clashed with these people. He shows up in Jerusalem making these outlandish claims. And the religious elite come alongside him. They want to say, who do you think you are? I mean, really, by whose authority do you think that you're doing this? Now, Jesus doesn't confront that problem directly, does he? Why? Because he knows that they, know, that they think they know the answer to that question. right? All right. We have God's imprimatur, thank you very much, young religious upstart. But Jesus knows that actually he is the one with God's uh, uh, grace on his life. So this is a clash of authority. That's what this is about. Is Jesus who he says he is? Or are the Pharisees the inheritors of God's people? Which is why I think their answer to Jesus is so profound. Because they say, they admit from their own mouths, that the only way to know whether someone is really from God is if you look at their Fruits. You have to look at what is being produced by their lives. Now, pause for just a moment. Because if you are what I think you are, relative religious people that would get up on a Sunday morning and come to church, whenever someone talks about there needing to be fruits that are produced in the life, you tend to think about certain things. You think about religious practices. Oh my goodness, fruits. Well, fruits would be me sort of getting over that terrible habit that I've had that I've not been able to kick. Or, well, you know, fruits are, are, are reading my Bible, praying more often, um, attending church on Sunday morning, which means I'm producing fruit even as, <laughs> even as we speak, by my mere presence here, right? But here's the deal. Actually, I think Jesus is, producing, is referring to something that's quite different, something that the, all those Pharisees would have had all those things I just listed. So what do they lack? Ah, we're coming to that. What is it that, first of all, let's ask the question, if you, all right, Pharisees, you're into fruits. What's being produced from your life? And let's answer that question from the passage itself. What exactly are the fruits that these people are experiencing themselves? Well, we actually see it there towards the end, do we not? Towards the end of what they say, they look up and they say, look, they were wanting to come and confront Jesus, but they just couldn't do it. Why? Because they knew him to be a prophet. And what does it say there? They feared the crowds. Bingo. Bingo. This is what it's like to live life as a tenant and think you're an owner because what it turns you into is a people pleaser. You are fully beholden to other people's opinions about you. Why? Well, it's because of what Keller was just saying. You know you can't conjure your own identity and whether you build a secular identity or a religious identity off of your practices, what it's gonna leave you doing is not knowing a fu- not having a word from the outside about who you are. And lacking that thing, what it means is, is your life is nothing more than to, coin the fr- or to use the phrase that Brene Brown uses, you're out there hustling for your own worthiness. You want to sum up my life? I'm out there hustling for my own wor- only worthiness. That's what Jesus is saying. A life that is built on anything other than God's sheer grace is going to be marked by insecurity. And because it's marked by insecurity, it'll be marked by fecklessness, You're going to need other people's opinions so badly that at best, you're going to walk around with no full realization of progress because you don't have the self-confidence to do so. At worst, you become an oppressor. I mean, think about it. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, nobody's really safe. If everyone thinks that they're the owner, then they have to fight off any rivals to that authority. Okay, so what's the alternative? Well, Jesus has been talking about it really since the beginning of his earthly ministry. To live as a tenant is to produce the only fruit that Jesus is actually interested in. Do you know what it is? It's the fruit of repentance. Now look, I wish we had more time to consider it, but there's a wonderful little story in Luke chapter 13 that you can go back and look at uh, on your own this afternoon. But there's some folks that approach Jesus with this question like, look Jesus, there there was an accident that happened X amount of months ago where something bad happened to some people. A tower fell on them, they died, whatever else. Here's our question. Was it them who sinned or somebody else that caused that terrible thing to happen? <laughs> that is classic tenant thinking, their owner's thinking right there. In other words, they're thinking, clearly, Jesus, the reason why good things happen to you is because you were a good person. And the reason why bad things happen to you is, 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 is because you have bad things that happen to you. Why? Because of your performance. Very good, tenant who thinks you're an owner. But of course, Jesus is not gonna have it, does he? In chapter 13, verse three of Luke, he emphatically says, That ain't the way this works, and by the way, unless you repent, you likewise will also perish. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's saying repentance is the key. And then he tells another story. This story is about a fig tree. There's a problem with this fig tree. It won't produce any fruit. So the owner's like, rip it up, get rid of it. Uh, It's taking up space. Well, the farmer comes along and says, Ah, give me a time out. Let me tend it a little bit and see if it doesn't eventually produce fruit. Interesting little story. What does it have to do with the whole story about the tower falling down? Here's the answer. If you do a little bit of research into that little fig tree Jesus is talking about that was indigenous to his region at that time, you'll find that those fig trees actually bloom about 10 months out of the year. In other words, it was normal for that particular uh, fig tree to produce fruit. It was a normal posture of that fruit. So what Jesus is saying, I believe, is, is, look, repentance is supposed to be the normal posture of a believing person. Stop living life in the quid pro quo. And instead, stay humble and repentant. Find yourself in something that other people would look at you and describe you as someone who said, you know, I'm not sure about what they believe. I'm not sure what they do in their free time. But I can tell you this, it's a person who doesn't have a lot of arrogance about them. They're humble. Does that describe us? Reminds me of a great illustration a friend of mine told years ago about. And you all did it this morning, presumably. <clears throat> and that is backing out of your driveway. Have you ever, have you ever taken notice of that particular miracle? You got into your car, you threw it into reverse, presumably. You looked in your rearview mirror, but then your mind had to actually take the image in your rearview mirror and reverse it so that you could translate where to where to back up. You guessed the distance between your bumper and the car behind you, or the curb behind you, whatever. And then you have to turn the wheel opposite of the way you want to go in order to actually get out of the driveway. And here's what's crazy. None of you thought about that until I just brought it up. But it was that complex, wasn't it? You don't even think about it. Here's what Jesus is saying. I want repentance to be equally instinctual for my followers that as soon as life begins to come in and press on you, what automatically comes out is a posture of humility that says, I don't know, but more than likely, there's probably something that I can own here. There's no room in his kingdom for defensiveness. So <laughs> Jesus' kingdom is this fundamental assault on your pride, but the irony is that once you find that identity in that posture, you can finally really be free. <laughs> You thought freedom was acting like an owner, but true freedom is only found when we suddenly stop and we no longer have to be beholden to the opinion polls, like the Pharisees. Jesus is coming to challenge all of this in his message, which leads us with one last little thing he says, and that is the challenge of the stone. Because let's be honest, that's a tall order. How is it that you get something like that in your heart, really? How do I become a person that would be known as a humble someone, who let defensiveness out and not always racing to it to where it becomes natural. Jesus gives us two clues in closing. First one is this. And it's actually a little more subtle than others, but I think you might have noticed it as you read it. In reading through that story, and you see the, the owner sending this first group of people. They're killed and stoned. Well, then they send another group of people, and the same thing happens to them. And then you sent your son? Was there a little part of you while I read the story thinking to themselves, um... This isn't working. Stop doing that. Why are you sending all these people? And as it turns out, the relationship of an owner to a tenant in that particular culture shows that when Jesus was telling this story, people would have been like, why is he doing that? I found a commentator said this, by continuing to appeal to the tenant's sense of honor, the landowner has made himself appear a fool be foolish for you to keep sending people back there. And honestly, people's incredulity at the first part of the story, when then he says, oh, well, I'll send my son, they would have been like, that would never happen. What are you talking about, Jesus? That's kind of. That's a far-fetched story. What would they say? People would say, no one would send their son. What they would do is they would call the law. Call some Roman soldiers. Go get the law after them. Come in and wipe them out. <laughs> Sounds familiar? That's exactly what the, uh, exactly what the uh, Pharisees were saying they should do. But here's the answer. And this is the great piece of it. It's fascinating to think about. Because what if this owner, though, it turns out, isn't in the game for the rent or the produce, whatever it is? No, these tenants won't pay up. But here's the deal. It's not the financial loss that this owner is regretting. The loss is the loss of relationship. Look, don't you see the owner of the vineyard, he's not there because of their production, He's not a boss who just wants a cut. The fact of his of sending wave after wave of people and finally his own son means that he is a father who wants his worker's heart. That's the only explanation for why he keeps sending person after person. And so my question before we finish is this. What does that do to your heart? If the identity of your your life is your performance, jumping through enough hoops that God is sending you, What happens to you when you finally realize there aren't enough hoops in the world to satisfy his holiness? What does that do to you? And what happens to you when you find out that he's not asking you about your ROI? No, his return on on his investment is you. It's you that he wants. It's It's not your performance. It's a relationship with you, a walking, talking, interacting, love relationship with you. That's what the owner wants. And what the Pharisees clearly have no concept of. That's how they got hooked in so easily, right? Look, Jesus gives us a second clue, and I'll finish with this. Jesus comes in when he's wrapping up the story, and he gives this weird quote. It seem that that didn't really fit there. turns out that quote Jesus gives about the cornerstone is from Psalm 118. It says this. Um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is talking about a stone that once it was rejected becomes the foundational element of the whole building. Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He knows the rejection that's coming. He knows the pain of what's coming for him. And here's what's crazy. He also knows that he has woven, this is amazing, that Jesus has woven their rejection of him into his plan to save them. It's mind-boggling. It's the reason why Jesus says at the end, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Is it marvelous in your eyes? Look, I'm in awe of what Jesus knows here because, look, let's be honest. We all wish we were owners, don't we? (laughs) What we would rather do is we would rather pay rent in his kingdom than humble ourselves and admit that he could command of us anything he wants. But he's our creator. He owns us. And so this invitation to us this morning is to come and to fall upon the stone. That's his invitation. Look what it says there in verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Did you catch the contrast? There's really not but two options here. Option number one is that you fall upon the stone. You throw yourself into the arms of Jesus and we think to ourselves, oh, that'll bring a peaceful, easy feeling and a nice life or not. We throw ourselves on the stone because he's the owner and he guarantees us at this point that falling on that stone is going to break you. A couple of weeks ago, I came across a quote that I wish I hadn't read. You ever had one of those where you're like, I wish I don't know that now. I now know this quote and I'm sadder that I do. But it's from A.W. Tozer. Y'all remember him? Sort of, sort of spiritual guru from back in the day. Tozer once said this. He says, It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I don't like that. I don't like this idea that that's where Jesus is sort of taking his people. He's like, look, I need to follow you down a path that, yes, is going to end up in the breaking of your pride. And so I encourage you at the outset of this journey with Jesus is to let go of it today so that maybe the lessons of those things... Because here's the deal. Everyone who's going to follow Jesus is going to hit the wall. You're going to hit the wall. And it's going to be one of those moments in life where you look around and think, this is not worth it, and I don't like this. And you may even say to yourself, I'm not sure I like him. Jesus, I know you're there, but I'm not sure I want you near me. That's what it's like to fall on the stone. That's what it's like to draw out humility out of his people. And as as hard as that can be, what it's going to do is it's going to crush your self-sufficiency. And it's going to lead you into being the vineyard that God looks and says, when I pick you, (laughs) it's going to make every single bit of crush, every single bit of hurt completely worth it. And then some, it's going to come back at you in spades. Because the only other option is to have the stone fall on you. And that's when you get crushed by the stone. And that same invitation that Jesus made to those Pharisees is before you today, we can fall on the stone and say, Jesus, do with me what you will. Command me as you will, for you are my creator. And you can command me however you will. Lead me into whatever it needs to lead me, and I will look at it as being from your gracious hand. Or you can wait for the circumstances of life to fall on you, in which case you have no hope to begin with. Doesn't really feel like a choice, does it? But my encouragement to all of us is to humble ourselves and to come to Jesus in that exact spirit. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, would you help us repent? sounds so simple, so easy, but it's really not. It's such a challenge. So we ask for you to walk us into it. Help us, Father, as we sing, to sing with hearts that say, you are our creator. You're the owner. We're the tenants. We work for you. We serve at your, at your behest because you're good, because you love us. You don't want our production. You just want us. And we're grateful for that. We take joy in it and hope that it motivates us to do better next time. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.